Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's uh, when, uh, Monday night, actually, starting log Boomer, Monday night, <clears throat> and uh, I'm going to do the take a look at the Parsha, uh, which is double Parsha, Parbukhi Kasei, of course, and this being sponsored by Bitsal um, Stefanski and family uh, for a special reason, uh, uh, a tragic reason, this, uh, this is uh, to, in the memory of Zecher Nishmas Yisachar Dov Berish. Ben Shlomo Steinmetz, who's one of the victims of the stampede, uh, what, two years ago? At Maroon. On tonight, basically. And then, uh, was it tonight or tomorrow? Um, on Lag Bomer, you know. It's, it's, uh, April 30th, 2021. I see now, pulling up, Wikipedia has an official name for it. The 2021 Maroon Crowd Crush. I guess you know how to use the word stampede. <laughs> Excuse me, stampede. So, uh, unfortunately, it's a close friend of the family, young fellow from Canada, I understand. And uh, he's one of the Carbonas, which is, I hope and hope and hope and pray, we all do. This year, they get it right. You know, I don't want to even say anything. Uh, but anyway, so this will be Lezecher Nishmas Yisachar Doberish, Steinmetz. Obviously, when it comes to Bahar Bechul Kosai, uh, it's the Tokachot. That's the most dramatic part. To me, anyway. I'm sure to everybody. And <clears throat> every year when I go through the Tokachot, you know, Shnai Mikra and all that, So, uh, which I like to do early in the week. So, uh, especially now that I'm in the, uh, in the podcast uh, situation. So, if something catches my eye, I make a note of it. Or highlight it or something like that. And <clears throat> the Tokachot, of course... Is full of predictions of what will happen if the Jewish people don't act right. And you and I, of course, know this is precisely um, what happened. I keep getting interrupted here by people. Uh, Anyway, here's the thing. You and I know that this happened, obviously. So in other words, it's remarkable. One of the ways, one of the ways of judging whether the Torah is accurate or not is by... Things, predictions like the Tochacha, <clears throat> which pretty much really came true, right? And if you look at it closely and you know history enough, you see like each Nakuda comes true. So it's one of the remarkable um, confirmations, you might say, of the veracity of the Chumash. And I'm not exactly sure how a Bible critic, for example, would explain that, except by contingency. It so happened, you know, the Jews were kicked out, and, uh, you know, as a minority, they suffered all these sorts of things. But you and I know, if you think of the different persecutions that the Jews went, uh, underwent in recent times, in earlier centuries, it really is striking how uh, rhetorically on target this speech of the Bechukosai is. And one Nakuda 
I'm picking up over here because I like to spend all night on this. That I <coughs> never <coughs> um, put under the microscope before would be 2633. Where Hashem is saying, if you do this, I'll smash your country, I'll, I'll destroy everything. I'll put your carcasses on top of the carcasses of your idols, and so on and so forth, which, which is also a very powerful image. <coughs> you, could, you could do a lot with that, um, because the Jewish people have definitely worshipped idols in our time. For example, in the 20th century, the Marxism or something like that. But I'm, I'm going to leave that alone. <coughs> and it says that Hashimosa and Isaritz it's such an interesting phrase. I never really gave full attention to it. So I have to thank the podcast um, pressure for uh, bringing that to my attention. <coughs> and it's for you, I'll be Zora you among the Goyim. It's such an unusual word. Zora. And Rashi, don't worry about it. Zora. Why didn't he say this? Eschem. What's the right word? I'll scatter. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, there are a lot of words for scatter. Um, it doesn't come to my mind, but you know what I mean. There's a lot of words like that, and um, and 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 they use it elsewhere, I'm sure. <clears throat> but Zohar is 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 interesting, <clears throat> and Rashi, of course, says it's I think it's a, a Torah's condom or something, where it says Zumida Kasha. This is a harsh measure. Shavshabaneyodam Rowan says that Golamokemechav Rowan says that. When the inhabitants of a country are exiled to one place and see each other, misnachim, they get a, a little nechama. The Israel and Israel, but the Jews were scattered, as if with a winnowing basket. Like a person who in his barley rashi says, with a sifter. And no one of them is stuck to the other one. Yeah, apparently it's the Torah's calling. You know enough from Shabbos, Hilchah Shabbos, saying Azorah, Azriah, is indeed like sifting, and so, God says, I'm going to take the Jews, and I'll treat them as if they're like uh, dust, and I'll scoop them up from Israel in my hand, and I'll hold them, for example, over Europe, and I go like this, I'll blow in the dust. And what's the result? The dust will scatter all over the place. Some will end up in France, some in England, some in Germany, some in Poland, some in Russia, Hungary, etc., 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 or anywhere else in the world. I'm just giving that for example. I'll pull my hand and blow the dust over North Africa, over the Middle East, uh, whatever area you want, wherever the Jews have been. <clears throat> and as he says, Rashi points out, and it's a good word, that one of the main features of the Jewish Golis is going to be this Zria, Zoreb, this, I'll call it the word atomization. You atomize, you reduce everything to atoms. <clears throat> this atomic atomization... Uh, of the Jews, which is an interesting, actually a fascinating phenomenon for the historian, because I always say in my college classes and other places, I'm sure you've heard me say it here also, <clears throat> one of my tropes, that when you study the history of the Jews, it has certain unique features. Uh, certain unique features. Now, we're not the only nation that lost their country and so forth and so on, but we have in my mind to me, a combination of three factors that I think are unique to the Jews. Number one, until recently anyway, when we go, oh, number one, didn't have a state, uh, didn't have a church, 
and didn't have geographical contiguity. Meaning, obviously, when the Romans destroyed the base of English, that ain't all that they destroyed. They destroyed the whole business. I mean, Jerusalem was literally wiped out, flattened. So, the Jewish state, with its governmental structure of whatever sort, was just eliminated, destroyed. And ever since that time, in the time of Titus, the Jews never again had a political entity. They never had a state, never had any kind of political entity. They're always ruled by someone else. that we consider like normal. I mean, you know, the Satmar, they want that. You know, they want to be ruled by someone else. Uh, that's one thing. Secondly, the Jews don't have a church. <clears throat> Meaning that we don't have any kind of formal religious structure to which all of us feel institutionally bound to obey. Now, that's not true with other groups. You know, the Greeks and were you know lost their state long ago. I mean, they actually never had a state until the 19th century, and around their other rulers, but they had a Greek church. The Armenians, uh, the, the, the Nestorians, I mean, there's a lot of groups out there that the members of that particular group defined themselves as having some group or body that they feel it has legitimacy to poskin for everybody, all the members of the group. Either they feel that God shows them or some other way. However they work it out within the culture of that group. As long as you get a consensus that everybody in that group agrees that this group of five people, 50 people, 500 people has the power to issue rulings and guidance. I mean, practical, lamaistic guidance for the members of that religious group, then it has it. So the church doesn't necessarily have the power to enforce especially if it doesn't have a state. But it has a structure that's recognized by all the members of that group. And the Jews, of course, don't have that. Once upon a time long ago, we had a Sanhedrin. At least that's what we tell ourselves. But we certainly haven't had one at least for 1,700 years. <clears throat> so to be Jewish means Mamish live in Hefkeris land. In other words, that's why there's no such thing as a Drabonan anymore. A Drabonan means, not some rabbi said it, Rabbana means that once upon a time long ago we had a church or a, a, a power structure that we all accorded legitimacy to. It was called the Sanhedrin, and before the name Sanhedrin had other names, the Knesset, you know, the Edo, whatever, Edo. But let's call it Sanhedrin just to make life easier. So there was a Sanhedrin, you know, and anybody who's a from Jew defined himself, defined herself, as obeying, feeling religiously bound to obey what the Sanhedrin says, if you follow what the Gemara says, even if you tell you right is left and left is right. So that means that we had a church once upon a time. But the Sanhedrin was destroyed one way or the other, went out of business, went into desuetude in the 300s, no, it was in the 4th century. And I think you know that. that's why they had to make the calendar and things like that. And ever since then, it's like a plane we are running, you know, with, with, with minus an engine or two, or three or four. So it's a strange religion we got, that we don't have a state, 
nor do we have a church. So how have the Jews survived? Well, they formed rough consensus. Get it? We have a surprising amount of rough consensus uh, around certain ideas that I usually call fundamentalism and nominism and all that stuff in my lectures. And there's a rough agreement uh, 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 along those lines. And that's what that's what we have in common. So this Shabbos, if I flew anywhere in the world, I would know the Parsha's Baharbukukuse, or maybe some places, you know, it's split into Bahar and then separate It doesn't matter, it'd be the same thing in the same davening. I know it'd be a difference in the davening, you know, but the basic same structure based on long ago. The way if I was stayed by a firm person in another continent, there might be slight differences possibly in how you run, you know, you, how you conduct Hilcha Shabbos, but 95%, 98% would be the same, maybe even 99%. And uh, so we Jews have had to survive uh, without a state and without a church. Um, now, there are some groups like that that haven't had a state in the church, but they've had geographical contiguity. They've all been in one place on the map. So if everybody's in one place <clears throat> on the map, so physically you all see each other and you hang around each other and you intermarry with each other. And because of the physical proximity, you may have an entity called that group. It could be a nation, it could be an ethnicity, it could be a sect, a race, call it what you want. But it's a real factor. It knows the members of that group feel that they are the members of that group. So it's a subjective reality, but when you take a subjective reality and you apply it on a wide scale, it becomes an objective reality. If there are 10 million people that feel that they're polka dotted Eskimos, then you 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 got you got that group to 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 contend with. <clears throat> you understand? And when it comes to the Jewish people, Eschem Bagoyim, you know and I know that the nature of the Gullus that we're in now, since the Korban Bayashani, which is a long time, <clears throat> has been one in which the Jewish groups aren't physically near each other. Today, in the year 21st century, and thanks to modern inventions the last 200 years, roughly, or 150, 200 years, we've had unprecedented contact between Jews in different places. That was not the case long ago. In the time of the Torah and for thousands of years afterwards, until really modern times, uh, a Jew living over here never met a Jew living over there. And that's why there developed very distinct regional identities, Ashkenaz, Sephard, you know, Greek, Italian, uh, you know, whatever, all, all these different types of groups. Uh, and they had a rough consensus, which was, um, what's the right word, valorized or intensified by common rabbinic literature, the Gemara and all the rest of that. <laughs> and that's true. But it's just rough. And the interest... In Ezra Bagam, I'll, I'll drop you atomized among the nations. So notice wherever the Jews were, although in some places they were large minorities in a relative sense, but never really large minorities. And when they, on rare occasions, grew into large minorities, a catastrophe happened and they were wiped out. So fulfilling Eschem Ezra Bagayim. Notice, let's put it this way, um, just off the top of my head. 
if you look at the Holocaust, so uh, what was happening? Uh, the Jews underwent a baby boom and quintupled in 100 years in Europe, especially Eastern Europe. They went from uh, like 3 million to 15 million. I've mentioned that from time to time. It's one of those little factoids of Jewish history that is of the most profound consequences and most people are not aware of it. But if you go online, you could, you know, you chase it down, do the numbers, you'll see it. We went from being about 3 million Jews around the world, let's say in the 1820s, 1830s, to like 15 million, 16 million, 17 million uh, by the 1930s, up to, to prior to Hitler. Uh, but it didn't last. So yes, maybe you had a 3 million Jews in Poland, but then, it, but then there weren't. You had once upon a time a large community in Spain, and then you did not. You see? So Eschem Ezer Bagoyim is sort of like a fate, which scares the heck out of a person who thinks about the fact there's a large Jewish community in the USA, and then maybe one day there isn't. You know, uh, because Eschem Ezer Bagoyim, part of the fate of the Tochachah is to be a small minority among the large nations and, as Rashi points out, to be in relatively small contact with other groups, with other Jews. What's the lotion that Rashi uses over here? Because it's very prescient, you know. Uh, <clears throat> mita, uh, mita, uh, where is it? Zumita Kosha, Shabashabane, Medina, Golan, Makam, and Misnachim. It's atomized like grains, like blowing uh, uh, powder. You, you know, one one will not come into contact with the other. Now, it's really interesting to me, speaking historically, and this is really a profound interest, and this would favor those who would say we're living in a time of some kind of either Aschalta de or something like that. You know, it's uh, too glib and too easy to actually define it. But we're definitely living, obviously, in a very different kufa than before. Because now you have a, a, a Jewish country and you have contacts among Jews. This is brand new. Throughout our history, listen closely. Throughout our history, meaning from the time of Chorim Bayesheni, the Jews were Eschem Goyim. They're scattered widely among the different Goyim. And there wasn't even an attempt made to gather representatives from all the different groups and come together for some kind of Jewish national council or international council, if you like, to discuss Jewish matters. In other words, when the, I know you most of you know this, when the Jews were in Poland in the golden age of Poland, way back when in the 1500s, 1600s, you had the Vat Arbaroxos. In other words, Poland was fairly large at that time because it included Poland and, uh, and Belarus and uh, Ukraine and Lithuania and Latvia, so it was a lot of area. And there were a lot of Kahilas and Jewish communities all over the place. And in that area, they would get together once or twice a year and issue takonis and discuss matters of common interest to, to Polish Jewry. That model of Avada Baratzis was possible at least theoretically, was possible for Claudius as a whole. What's to stop in the year 1700 or 1500 or something like that finding one place in the world where they wouldn't mind and then having representatives of 
different Jews come together. Let's, let me just make something up at the top of my head. Suppose in the year 1600, such an idea took off. So they would say like this, <clears throat> we're going to have an international meeting of Jewish representatives, and there's Israel. It's under the Turks. We'll get permission. It's only going to last a week or two. And therefore, rabbis or rich balabatim or Jewish statesmen, whatever you got, will come from Poland, obviously from the Turkish Empire, which is huge, from Italy, from Germany, the communities, from Morocco, Algeria, Yemen, Persia. You know, you get it. You get the idea. Now, theoretically, that could happen. If, if the transformation was difficult, you give it a two-year heads up. Then for sure, for sure, for sure, everybody would be able to make it in time, unless a war breaks out in some of the area, which was not unheard of at all. But it was theoretically possible. And then you'd have, let's say, a meeting. Of, it would have been very interesting in 1600, just for argument's sake, of Rabbanim from uh, different places in Europe and different places in the Middle East. And they could talk about, you know, what should what should we do for Claudius as a whole? Or should we do absolutely nothing? But what I just said was never even up for discussion. No one even brought it up to get shot down. It's off the, the table. Because of what we weren't thinking in that, in that way. Our thinking was entirely, we're standing here, we're never going to have any real contact with any other Jews in, in, the, in the group sense that our group is meeting with your group as a group. And certainly all the groups together meeting as Klal Yisrael. But don't worry, Hashem will send the Mashiach when he decides. And somehow he'll make that all good. You know, he'll, he'll fix it. But until then, it's broken, it can stay broke. And that's the idea, I'll scatter you in disconnected little powder pieces all among the different nations. Right? And there'll be a lot of anti-Semitism over there. And and that's why, that's how I would read the Pesach, that's why Israel remained desolate. As you know, this changed under secular circumstances, but it doesn't matter. In the late 1800s, when you had the rise of the secular Zionist movement, <clears throat> which challenged what I just said, and exactly said, why not? Let's try it. Why can't we get together a meeting of people, of Jewish representatives from all over the place? Now, the truth of the matter is, they couldn't really do it. This is Theodor Herzl. But they faked it. In other words, they invited and they brought together people who, who declared themselves to be representatives of the Jewish communities in which they lived. There's a rabbi who came from Baltimore, believe it or not. He said, I represent American Jewry. And some people came from England, some people came from Germany, and from Austria-Hungary, and from Russia, and so forth and so on, Italy, and you name it. And that was the first Zionist Congress. And even though it was all BS, and they, were just, and, they, and they didn't represent anybody, actually. But look what they took off. Even the idea of looking like, even if it's phony, of looking like we're reversing the process of Eschem Ezerbagoyim had the most remarkable consequences because it set and chained the train of events, as you and I know, that within 50 years, they actually had a state of Israel and then one-third of what I said before, we don't have a state, all of a sudden became not true anymore. Now, it's not the kind of state that the Torah had in mind necessarily, 
and I understand it's not from it and so forth and so on. I, I, I get that, because uh, I'm not dumb. But nevertheless, one second here. Nevertheless, to make light of it and say, you know, has no significance is ridiculous. It's almost ridiculous in, in light of, of looking at the at the broad trends of Jewish history. And so you see this Eschemizer Bagoyim or not is like a it's like a, a, a marker, a litmus test of what's happening with Kali Yisrael. And it is a fact that ever since nineteen forty eight the state of Israel has been undoing Eschem Bagayim. Now, so have the Goyim themselves. Meaning that a situation in which you have two Jewish communities or two sets of Jewish communities, one in Israel and the others everywhere else in Chutzlars, is not a long-term proposition. And the reason I say it is because Israel itself has taken in millions from the other countries Usually they're running away from persecution, for example, from, from Russia, from Arab countries, things like that. That part is true. And the ones that not, if you look at the Jewish people as a whole, they are um, uh, succumbing to a disappearance, to assimilation, to imagine that kind of business, which is a Pasuk a little bit later where it says, I think that's how it goes. Yeah, in Pasuk Lamaches. It's very interesting uh, phrase. And the land will eat you up. What does it mean? The land will eat you up. The assimilation will eat you up. I mean, in other words, you see it. You understand? The land, the culture, the ideals of the other group. Now it hasn't hit yet the from, but it sure as heck has hit the non from. You know, and I know. You're talking about an eighty percent intermarriage rate. That's another way of saying eighty percent intermarriage rate is That's what it means. There's nothing to talk about. So all of a sudden, eschem once again becomes one of the most remarkable psukim in the tochacha. And if we see any kind of modification of that or change in that, which was which has happened in our lifetime, or to be more accurate, in the last hundred years or so then it means we're living in some kind of a change. Now, we don't know, and I don't know, and, you know, uh, how can I know what the significance of the change is, all the rest of it. So people tie into this and tie into that. That's just what they, 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 that's what they wish. You know, they don't know. You can't know. But it, but it's something extremely significant. Okay? Uh, and it says, as long as Eschem is Arbagayim, is Arzchem Shemam Avarichem Yecharba. So when you undo Eschem Ezerbagayim, then you have the reverse of Arzachem Shemama, and you have the reverse of Arechem Yucharba, and that's what we've seen. Like I said, in the last century or so, or last 75 years, however you want to calculate it, we have seen a reversal of Arz Shemama, and we've seen a reversal of Arechem Yucharba. Uh, so this is one Nakuda of the Tochacha. Obviously, it's not the whole thing. But isn't it remarkable, spot on? And isn't it interesting? It may jar the sensibilities of some people listening to this podcast because of their politics, whatever. But it's it it it's uh you know it jumps out at you, I think. And um, 
this wouldn't I couldn't say this word over two hundred years ago or something. You know, it, it it wouldn't mean anything. I wouldn't I wouldn't have this insight, but because I can look back at least one hundred fifty years or so, you see these remarkable changes, even though we ain't there yet, and we are very very far away from where we need to be on that. That's an understatement, but you see that there's certain uh, progress made to Eschem and Zerbagayim. Because today, basically, I think I'm right. I think 90% of the Jewish people, if not more, live in Israel and America. I think. Uh, very few are living elsewhere. And certainly no other significant groups. I know there's England and France and, and South Africa. I mean, I know there are some other places. But you know what I'm saying. I'm saying the, Ju the Jewish people's residents have become highly centralized in a way that hasn't been true in the past. Usually it used to be Eschem and Zerbagayim. Jews are scattered all over the place. There are communities everywhere. Now, much less. Much less. Um, now, you have some expat communities, and, you know, you have Yordim and things like that. But broadly speaking, it's much, much less. So, once again, I call your attention to just this one or two Nikudas from the Tochah that to a person who looks at the history of the Jewish people, and you read what you read in in in, in Parshas it does look like a blueprint of what's what, what's going to be happening in the future. And for a person that doesn't believe, which I understand, then you have a little bit of a problem. How come it worked out exactly, you know, the way the way it's described in in in, in the Parsha? Uh, then I think is a very interesting. You could have a very interesting conversation about that, an intelligent conversation. This Shabbos, in my opinion. Uh, anyway, that's what I wanted to say in the Parsha. Again, I want to thank Mishpah Stavansky and pay tribute today on the yard site. It was, in other words, it was two years ago. So, second yard site of Yisachar Doberish, um, Yisachar Dov Steinmetz. And, uh, there's nothing to say about the terrible trail. What do they, they call on the internet? The Maroon Crowd Crush. Let's just hope something like that, of course, never happens again. And with that, I wish everybody a good um, log bomber. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.